you know, nobody likes being told no. Uh, and I always say to folks, no doesn't mean no in fundraising. It might mean not now or not this project or not this amount, you know. So it's not a rejection of who you are or an, uh, it's not an expression that your work is worthless. It has more to do with the donor situation in that case. You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast, brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier, so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com. Because good causes deserve better results. Now... Here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver, brought to you by Yachtme, the virtual events platform that's 100% free to nonprofits, and PodPro Audio, making professional podcasting easy. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Kev Kayat, and now that we've got over 50 episodes, I invite you to dive into the back catalog on your favorite podcast provider or watch on my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. Just a quick reminder, you are actually the nonprofit problem solver. My guest and I are trying to make your job a little bit easier by sharing practical, tactical expertise that you can put straight into action. This podcast was recorded live as it's always been, and you're invited to join the live recordings every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific. RSVP at nonprofitproblemsolver.com. You can find me and lots of free resources at kevkaya.com, as well as Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Clubhouse. Nonprofit Problem Solver has a dedicated Facebook group and a club on Clubhouse, where you can ask questions and join discussions with an ever-growing group of nonprofit experts and colleagues to get practical, tactical advice on being the best nonprofit entrepreneur you can be. I'm no handyman, but I do know that if something's stuck, use WD-40. And if something's moving when it's not supposed to, use duct tape. And it would appear that in nonprofits, we use a lot of metaphorical duct tape to fix the shaky bits in our fundraising. In the absence of a spray or pill that makes people suddenly fall in love with fundraising, today we've got Rachel Ramjatan, who's trained over 300 grassroots organizations to fundraise. She's laid out a huge chunk of her training in her book, No More Duct Tape Fundraising. And today she shares her answers to the three questions she gets asked the most. How do I find my Oprah or other super rich benefactor? How do I get my board to fundraise? And finally, as chief everything officer, how do I find the time? We start with why people don't like fundraising in the first place. And of course, Rachel has a great story to share. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. This is the live weekly podcast where we go deep into specific problems affecting nonprofits. My guest today is Rachel Ramjatan, and we're going to be speaking about her fundraising book and her fundraising school and all the other 
pearls of wisdom she's going to share with us about fundraising. Before we get into that, though, let me just thank my sponsors, Yachtme, the online virtual events platform that's 100% free to nonprofits. Check it out if you're planning a virtual or hybrid event. And PodPro Audio, making professional podcasting easy. Hit up Glenn if you've got any podcasting questions and tell him I sent you. Okay, episode 51. Hello, Rachel. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Kev. I'm so happy to be here hanging out with you and your crew. Yeah, great stuff. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your uh, your nonprofit journey and how you got to where you are. Well, I like to say I'm an accidental fundraiser. <laughs> I grew up in Jamaica, and my father was in the Lions Club. So my earliest foray into fundraising was really with those cans for White Cane Week, asking people to drop coins in the cans to pray. All right. Pray for cataract surgery. And then I got involved with a Catholic missionary group that had aid hospices throughout, um, AIDS hospices. And so I worked with them as a volunteer. And then when I came to the U.S., they had a friends group. So obviously I joined that too uh, and would organize concerts uh, to raise money for their homes around the world. Uh, I actually have a degree in IT. And so what landed up happening was uh, my father said, I'm not paying for a degree that's going to keep you dependent on some man for the rest of your life. Study something sensible. <laughs> so Excellent. I spent 10 years in uh, the manufacturing industry working in IT before I finally got my dream of moving over to the nonprofit sector. Uh, all of this is to say uh, I've had no formal training, uh, but everything I've learned has been trial and error. And, uh, you know, you learn more from your errors than you do from your wins sometimes. Absolutely. Yes. Well, that's not, that's a, that's a great story and, and perfectly, uh, I think, uh, consistent with lots and lots of people in nonprofits, uh, both accidental in their introduction, um, stay a lot longer than they anticipate and uh, learn along the way. So I'd, I'd say you're perfectly qualified to uh, share what you're going to share with us uh, today. So um, those of us who, those of you who are watching live on Facebook, LinkedIn, or YouTube, you can drop in uh, comments to the chat, ask uh, Rachel or myself questions. I'll try and keep uh, abreast of them as we go along and fold them into the conversation. And if you're watching the replay on any of those channels uh, or listening to the podcast in your favorites, pod provider, uh, don't uh, be shy, subscribe, like, share, ask us a question. Uh, tag us and we'll do our best to respond to it. So onwards then, Rachel, uh, tell us about your what, what led to you um, writing your book on fundraising. You know, Kev, that's a really cool uh, story. Uh, I had just started my consulting firm seven years ago and answered an ad on the web for people that wanted to be fundraising coaches for grassroots organizations. So I landed up partnering with a startup in Chicago called DonorPath and coached for them for a couple of years. And then they were acquired by Network for Good. And uh, so the program got rebranded uh, to be something called Jumpstart. And it was a combination of coaching and technology to help nonprofits mm -hmm. raise money. So I'm the co-architect of that program. And over the course of designing and implementing it nationwide, I landed up coaching more than 500 nonprofits through the program. And I found that they all had the same questions, uh, <laughs> maybe in different sequences. <laughs> uh, and right. so I think, well, shoot, why not put this in a book, <laughs> you know? And I really wanted um, to do something about two things. Uh, first is 
the development profession has a really high turnover rate. The average person in development switches jobs every 18 months, which makes yeah. it really hard for both nonprofits and staff. And the biggest reason for that is that usually it happens like it happened to me. You get thrown into a role. There's very little support sink or swim, and it just becomes overwhelming. So I wanted to try and write the book that I wish I had when I became a fundraiser. And then my second um, reason for writing the book is I'm an immigrant, first generation immigrant from Jamaica. And, mm -hmm. you know, in, when I fundraised in Jamaica, it was very different from fundraising here. Uh, you know, most of the fundraising training in America is written by white people for white people. And so in the typical transaction, uh, that is the beginning of a relationship with a donor. Where yeah. I come from, it's completely the opposite. You have to have a relationship with somebody before you can even ask for money. There's also uh, some trauma in the different power dynamics of being an immigrant or a person of color soliciting mostly white donors. Um, and so I realized that a lot of the people of color that I was coaching needed to make the same mindset shifts that I had to make in order to become a successful fundraiser in America. Uh, I like to use the story of Amazon.com. Um, you know, 30 years ago, a friend who was a stockbroker told me and my ex-husband, hey, this is a little startup you should buy shares in and they're going to sell books online. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, my ex-husband was like, not so quick. And so I make the point that if we had done that, uh, we would be retired by now with millions. Um, but I couldn't get mad with my friend because he told me about it. And I said, no. Well, in the same way, we have some amazing nonprofit leaders doing incredible work, courageous work, and they're in the same position. They have the Amazon.com of social change in their hands, and mm -hmm. they're not inviting anybody to be part of it. And so I say, you don't ask people for money. You give people the opportunity to change the world. That's a whole yeah. different invitation, you know? It, it is. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you entirely. I, I, I like to try and conceive it as an invitation. And it is a mindset shift because so much of the training is framed around making the ask or leading up to the ask and the ask and the ask and the ask. And, and as you said, it's it's um, it's whether it's the start of the relationship as you described or the relationship precedes that point. Uh, it does make it seem transactional. It puts uh, it makes a very high stakes uh, situation. Uh, and uh, as you said, it, it's it's shifts the power to the donor rather than to the, uh, or make it about the opportunity. Uh, and, and, and then it creates a lot of other problems from there. Absolutely. And, and so in writing the book, my intent was really to do two things, to, to help nonprofit leaders not be afraid of asking for money. But also when we go to philanthropy co uh, conferences, Kev, I'm sure you've noticed a lot of the people look like me and you. And if we're really going to bring about social change in our sector, then we have to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to learn and money is power. So if you're a champion fundraiser, you're going to get opportunities for leadership at the foundation level and with the people who hold the money. And what better way to help bring equity to philanthropy than equipping a whole generation and, and group of people that have been excluded traditionally just by virtue of not having the opportunity. So yes, I'm a fundraiser myself. 
And yes, I'm a coach and all those things, but at the heart of what I'm doing, I think it's really about social change. How can I help the grassroots leaders that are doing such amazing work uh, become good fundraisers so they can have access to leadership positions in the places where there is power? And that's really the long game. Yeah, you know that's excellent, and I think we're you know we're all of us who who work in and around the sector and support it have that that mindset for the for the most part. I know that's not entirely true, um, but um, you know I think I think those of us who think that way tend to congregate together, don't we? Yes. Um, and so in in coaching that number of nonprofits, were there. Were there a consistent set of problems or questions that people asked you that said it, that you, you knew at some point along the way, whether it was day one or day 100, they were going to say, Rachel, I wish someone would just tell me how to do X. What, what was that? What were those X type things that that came up over and over and over again? Well, there would be three. The first one is, where can I find my Oprah Winfrey? <laughs> you know, right, right. <laughs> mega rich donor that could change life, you know, with one big check. Uh, uh, second would be, how can I get my board to fundraise? You know, yep. and then the third uh, is usually, how do I make time for this when I'm the chief everything officer and I have so much on my plate? Uh, because most of the organizations I was coaching either had no development director, so it was mostly executive directors and volunteer mm -hmm. members, or if they did have a development director, it was somebody who this is their first position in this career. So they didn't right. have a lot of experience coming into the job, in large part because of the salaries that we, that nonprofits can afford to pay, right? right. And so those are the three things. Um, where can I find big donors? Um, how can I get my board on board? And then how do I find time and get people resources to make this happen when I have so much on my plate? So uh, can we take those in turn? Would that be Absolutely. would that be helpful? Okay, great. So the the big donor one, the you know find my find my Oprah or um, uh, Mrs. Bezos, I guess you know to, to link to your Amazon comment. Um, what was the main motivation for that? Do you think people sort of had a distaste or or uncomfortability around? fundraising and so they wanted it all done simply by just one check or because they had huge ambition for what they wanted to achieve and and uh, a big gift like that would get them there quicker i think it's a combination of the two you know an and and situation uh most for most it was i really don't want to have to spend a lot of time in fundraising it's hard work i hate doing it so one big check would solve the problem but I mean, usually those two are linked because usually you need to have a big ambition and a big dream in order to even think about fundraising. I mean, it's hard work. Why else would you do it if you didn't have that dream, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, you're, you're, you're dealing, as you said, with these smaller grassroots organizations. Typically, there is no separate development director and people go into end up in these executive director roles, uh, typically from from one or other background. Either they, as you were saying earlier, they started as fundraisers and then they get into leadership positions or they go off on their own and start a new a nonprofit where they're where in that role. And those I would guess don't necessarily dislike fundraising, perhaps, but then they've just bought into a whole new range of, of duties and responsibilities. And then there's the others who come up through the programmatic side and are used to building and running services and partnerships on the ground and working in their communities and the fundraising they really hope is taken care of by someone else often. Um, and, and so did those two groups 
stand out obviously amongst the groups that amongst those that you were supporting or were there were there other types of of individual that you found different sort of background didn't fall into one of those two camps there was a third group uh, a lot of founders so these are people that maybe started nonprofits um because they've been impacted by a situation in their family or with somebody that they love and wanted to do something about it. Uh, or maybe they just were very community minded and looking to make a career change, thinking, well, if I found a nonprofit, I can pay myself. That also happens a lot. Uh, yes, yes. That third group is a little more challenging um, in, in terms of coaching because a lot of times you'll hear people talk about founder syndrome, you know, because it's their baby and they're afraid to let go. And the whole idea of sustainability and succession planning, nobody wants yeah. to plan for when they leave an organization. So, But I'd even say- in building it, sorry to interrupt. You, I mean, I, I constantly tell people that nonprofits are a team sport. You've yeah. got to bring people to you all the time because uh, there's just too much to do for any one person. Yes, absolutely. And for scalability and impact. So, you know, I found that the, those that fall into the founders category, yes, they had some of the same struggles, but there was an additional layer that we needed to address, which is basically to say, we need to be thinking about succession planning and growth, scaling, how you're going to grow your board, your circle of influence uh, without the organization losing its identity and without the story being you, because every founder wants to say, well, this organization was founded by me, you know, that's not a compelling case for support for a donor, right? (laughs) They care about the people you're helping. And so that was really the third group. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's useful. So different, different set of um, challenges. Did you uh, then focus on, on helping people who were resistant to fundraising at least engage with it productively, if not love it, learn to love it? (laughs) So, you know, the comment I get most about any workshop I teach or even the book is you make fundraising doable. And I think that's that's the feedback I get most. So my goal is to make them more confident fundraisers. They may still hate doing it, but at least they can be more confident making the ask. They can be more confident in the value of their work, you know, and speaking eloquently about it. And I actually do, uh, I have an online fundraising school based on the book and I do a pre and post uh, survey. So I ask them to rate from one to five, how confident they are as fundraisers before they go through the program and then after. And inevitably over 90% of them report at least one step above in growth, usually two. So I might not be able to take somebody who's a level one to a level five, but they're going to at least get to a two or a three where they can do it and believe in it enough that they can do it successfully. That's great. What What are the what are the common sources of these of the fears or dislike of, of fundraising? What do you find that people either say, and maybe they don't always say what exactly what it is all the time. You might have to do a bit of diagnosis once you've been coaching with them for a while. But why do people you find dislike it uh, and and or or um, uh, find it unpleasant? So there are two things really. Uh, the first is a fear of rejection. You know, nobody likes being told no. Uh, And I always say to folks, no doesn't mean no in fundraising. It might mean not now or not this project or not this amount. 
you know, so it's not a rejection of who you are or an, uh, it's not an expression that your work is worthless. It has more to do with the donor situation in that case. Uh, but the second reason that I think is more, takes a little more time to uncover is we all have our own cultural norms around money. So when I grew up, my parents would say, don't ever ask anybody how much they earn or how much their house costs or any of those things because it's private, right? Yeah. Similarly, when we speak about money, a lot of times the words we use show or just or how uncomfortable we are talking about money. So, for example, people will say, I hate when people hit me up for money. The very thing hit me up. It makes it seem like somebody's, you know, holding a gun to your head, like you got to give money to this or else, right? Right. Right. Um, even in terms of our own approach to money, uh, we project our relationship with money on other people. So sometimes I will hear people say, well, so-and-so is not going to be able to afford to do that. Um, and I tell a wonderful story in my book about um, a, a beggar. So I was uh, maybe 12 years old, volunteering with the Lions Club to raise money for uh cataract surgery and selling raffle tickets for Mercedes Benz that they would raffle off every year. And so every, uh, every weekend, my dad would drive this Mercedes Benz to the busiest plaza with a battalion of teenagers. And we would fan out across the area and ask people to buy tickets. And one day this beggar set up his little station right at the department store, which was my corner, right? <laughs> and he put a huge dent in my business cab. And, you know, somehow my exuberant 12-year-old self managed to keep my mouth shut because I wasn't going to win top sales that day, right? Right. At the end of the day, when my dad came to pick me up, I looked at the beggar and it was something totally instinctive. I said to him, would you like to do something to help the blind? And the man dropped a few coins into a can that I had. He couldn't buy a ticket, obviously, but he dropped some coins. And I remember my dad saying to me, oh, my gosh, how can you beg a beggar? Let's go. And he wanted the ground to open up and swallow him whole, you know. <laughs> I wish that I had known the significance. It's only in later years that the full meaning of that encounter came to me. As a 12-year-old, it was like, ha, prove that wrong. There you go, you know? Right, but right. I got into my fundraising career, it really hit on a greater truth, which is everybody wants to make a difference in their own way. And so we do not have the right to choose who gets invited or who doesn't, based on whether we think they can afford to give or not. So you asked me the question in the beginning, why do people hesitate on fundraising or hate it so much? It comes down to our own relationship with money and our own biases and our cultural preferences, and then down to fear of rejection for people saying no. Yeah. And it's interesting about the the fear of uh, rejection. So I get the total, all the psychology about the you know, relationship with money is, is fascinating area. We go on forever about that one. Um, uh, and I want to I want to come back to that when we get to the second bit about the board. But I just want to um, note that there's a, there's a an apparent contradiction, uh, which doesn't it, it said it's apparent only. It's not real with this idea that on the one hand, we want to build relationships and uh, we have a relationship with our donors and so on. And it's not transactional yet when they say no. <laughs> <laughs> don't take it personally. Like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> if I'm building up a, you, know, you see what I mean? So, it, it, and I think that can, that can create a lot of confusion uh, for people at times where 
Uh, I like the way that you described it. It, it doesn't mean uh, it, it's not the it's not the re- complete rejection. No, of you personally, it's not this amount, not this project, not this time, uh, maybe not this particular organization because I have other priorities at at, at the moment. So I, I think there's there's lots of ways of, of understanding it that are not personal even though um, the relationship uh, is still at the heart of it and the relationship continues. It's not like the relationship's being rejected. Right. And that's the tension, you know, because we are being held accountable for meeting certain metrics as fundraisers because the organization needs us to meet those metrics to continue their work. Uh, and the, the, the tension is we don't want to, we have to meet a certain quota but it's not a particular donor that has to help you meet that quota, you know? So unless it's Oprah, (laughs) unless it's Oprah, I will take Oprah's call anytime. If you're listening, Oprah, (laughs) 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 Uh, but you know, I, I, I tell a story in my book, Kev. Um, I have one of my longest donors just passed away a couple of years ago and he was a very successful entrepreneur owned casinos all over the world. And, um, when I first approached him about a project, I thought for sure he would say yes. He loved kids. You know, he had been supporting us for a while. And the project I pitched him was that we had 200 very uh, developmentally delayed kids. So not because there was anything wrong with their intellect, but they hadn't had preschool. So they entered kindergarten and first grade way behind, no literacy or numeracy skills. They come from very low-income households, very food-insecure households, so nutrition or, or malnutrition was a part of their story, too. So we had this project where we were going to bring them in every morning early, feed them a nutritious breakfast, and do some tutoring before the school day began when they're fresh, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought for sure this donor would be all over that. And he rejected me immediately. I mean, like, no hesitation. And I didn't have a plan B. And in my head, I'm thinking, what the heck? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I had the presence of mind to say to him, hmm, you surprised me. I thought you'd be all over that. Can you help me unpack that? And he told me a story. He said he was one of five kids. His dad died when he was young. So his mom was raising five kids alone. Um, And so he was a troublesome child, just a mischievous kid, wasn't too into school. And his mother enrolled him in the Boys and Girls Club after school. And because he fell in love with sports, he had to do well in school to play in sports. And he said, kids need more fun, not more instruction. So if you, so I said, ah, that makes sense. And I said, well, tell me, how would you address this with these kids? And he said, put them in after school sports. No, he had no clue. There was no after-school sports because there's no money. It's a third-world country, you know. But I went back to the principal and I said to her, Miss White, could we design an after-school program that has homework assistance built in with food? And she said, yeah. So I said, how much would it cost? And she told me, and I went back to that donor and I said, hey, you know, would you be interested in funding this? He not only agreed to fund it, he funded it for over 15 years before he died. And he would always say that writing that check every month gave him such pleasure because his mother had died many years before and he was just so grateful to her. So when we say no, a donor says no, I could have become discouraged and said, oh my gosh, I've been rejected. I'm not going to meet my quota. But because I paused to ask a question to understand it through the lens that he was seeing, I landed up scoring a much bigger gift than anything I would have ever gotten otherwise. 
Yeah. And that's that's great when that uh, you have that flexibility in the program when it's at that design stage that you can go back and forth and iterate and design a program that will meet the needs of the people you're trying to see serve as well as the needs of the donor. Um, I'm sure I'm sure you and I both know stories where that's gone a bit awry. You know, the donors have, have you know, in, in, in leveraged their power in inappropriate ways or, yes. or ways of taking the program sort of off the rails. But uh, that's that's fortunately uh, a really good story. So uh, uh, thank you for sharing that. Let's move on to the uh, the board. This is one of my favorite uh, favorite topics: getting the board <laughs> the board to fundraise. So the reason I talked, I want to come into this second. I think the order is great here because you mentioned in the, the 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 resistance to fundraising that the executive director herself or himself might have is uh, about fear of rejection and also their own relationship with money. And you said something, and, and I'd have to wait for the transcript to get it verbatim, but it was something around none of us has the right to uh, dictate who can participate and at what level. I think, you know, something around the, along those lines. I think that's a, an interesting uh, entry point to this question about getting the board to fundraise and things like uh, give and get policies and the some of the um, uh, standards around those or expectations around those are shifting nowadays because we want I mean, in some ways, we want things to be easier. We want to just say, "This is this is the give and get for the board. This is what you should. This is how you go and do it." Uh, you know, here's you uh, know, here's, buy this table uh, and ten places for your uh, equally wealthy friends, <laughs> and so on. But but boards are changing, uh, at, particularly at grassroots level, uh, where I think a lot of organizations are much more tightly involved in the communities that they're serving and in, engaging those communities at board level in the governance of their organizations. And so it's changed the way boards are now fundraising. Yeah. So I, I've got a few things that I'd love to say about that. I'm a bit of a traditionalist in that I'm a firm believer in give and get policies. However, I'm not a firm believer in having a hard and fast number because it creates right. exclusivity and after more than a decade in the social justice movement, I'm all about inclusion and representation. And that is the direction that our everything is moving in. Thank goodness. It's about time, right? So the way that I frame give and gets is it's important to have one. But instead of specifying a dollar amount, which would exclude people, you say to a board member that this organization will be in the top three groups you support financially every year, and you'll make a personally significant gift. Now, if I'm dealing with low-income people, a perfectly significant gift might be $5 a month. No problem. Yeah. People give what they can. Uh, but there, that is, uh, I think, an important element because if your board won't trust you with their money, no foundation is going to trust you with their money either, right? Right. <laughs> So that's right. first thing. Uh, second thing is I'm a big believer in being very transparent in the onboarding and recruitment process so that board members understand that fundraising is part of their responsibility in the sense that, and I don't mean asking for money. So there's so much more to fundraising than asking for money. Uh, nobody joins your board because they want to fundraise. Absolutely not. <laughs> or if you do, find me. I, I have a few organizations that could use Yeah, them. that's right. <laughs> this is my number. <laughs> Contact me here. <laughs> but you also have to recognize people have a reason for joining your organization, serving on your board. It's our job to find out what that reason is and make sure that those needs get met. 
if a board member's needs are getting met, then they're going to work hard for you, right? So, for example, you might have a young professional that joins your board that is in their first job after graduating college, and maybe they dream of a career in finance. Well, then that would be a great person to put on your finance committee because they're going to acquire skills that will help them further their career. Uh, sometimes people are introverts, some are extroverts. So if I'm an introvert and you're asking me to ask people for money, I'm going to quit your board before I even come to one meeting. It's not going to happen. Um, or if I'm an extrovert, well, I obviously am. <laughs> uh, as an extrovert, if you ask me to sit down and write thank you notes to, to donors, it's not going to be on my top 10 list of favorite things to do, and I'm going to bore easily. Now, ask me to go talk to you, the community, about something to do with the organization. I'm all over that. So when it comes to boards, I think the reason that nonprofits struggle so much with boards is because of the understanding of what board boards are supposed to do. So we think boards should fundraise, but the board success of fundraising is directly linked to how we engage them. Are we providing training? Are we setting them up for success? Are we playing to their strengths? You know, are we making it easy? And so when when this is my favorite topic to teach on, actually, because <laughs> when you have a good board, it can be a huge asset. But most nonprofits don't. And it's because of the recruitment and onboarding process. Right. And they don't invest in that continuing education. Yeah. And it's setting those expectations uh, very early on about how you do it. But I think what you've what you've raised, it's it's essentially the, that classic management uh, uh not problem. It's the classic management mistake, which is to think, and I know a lot of uh, first time managers make this error, which is to say, I know I'm going to treat everybody exactly the same. And, and, and you can't treat everybody exactly the same. You've got to treat everybody in a way that gets the best out of that person, whether you're managing direct reports in a, in a job or you're, or you're managing individual board members. So I, I love the way you laid that out in terms of what, what, what energy and experience they bring, what resources they bring, what uh, skills and talents they bring. And in fact, you should really understand those as you go in and search and recruit for people. So you've got a, uh, a well-balanced board in terms of skills and the introverts writing thank you notes and the extroverts going out into the community. But, but, but you're right, everybody should be doing what's right for them and your board rather than, um, we can think of it in almost too simplistically and say, well, everybody's gonna do exactly the same thing and then I don't have to think about it. Uh, right. But that actually isn't uh, the, the, the way to get the best success out of your board, is it? No, and I think the most important thing is really to understand why people join your board in the first place. If you can meet that need, they're going to work harder for you and never want to leave, you know? Right. Well, you should be part of that conversation too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, as, you, as you're bringing pe people on, particularly if you're a founder or you're just starting your board. And I think the other element about boards, I think why uh, some don't work as effectively as they, as, they, as they could do, particularly in the working board stage and as a transitioning over the course of the nonprofit's growth to, a, to an oversight board is the relationship between the executive director and the, the board president or the board chair. And, and sometimes the roles get really cloudy and murky. And, and I've always said the relationship between those two individuals is the fulcrum on which the success of the nonprofit rests. It's the most important yeah. relationship. And they have to be clear about who's doing what. And I think in you know established, mature nonprofits where there's been a long-term board uh, uh, and, and there's job descriptions and everything, and the board knows 
what they do and that they employ the ED and then the ED is responsible for the staff. That That's fine when you come into a mature organization, but the new ones and the growing ones struggle from an all volunteer working board and trying to actually build themselves up to uh, to that to that oversight board where those roles are are clear and more more stabilized it's always in flux and and that's uh, that's that's just more challenging to handle and I honestly think the organizations that navigate that best are the ones that have coaches because it's not an easy transition to make in that board members have to cede the operational decisions to the executive director and the executive director often has to see a lot of the governance issues to the board chair. So there has to be a lot of trust there. And uh, yeah. I'd like to share a story, uh, Kev, if it's okay. I yes. once served on a board of a fabulous organization called Just Faith Ministries. Um, they're a social justice formation group based in Louisville, Kentucky. And it is the best onboarding experience I ever had as a board member. They brought in a consultant, um, and that consultant in our first meeting talked about the role of the board. And they said, you know, there's different ways you can think about boards. So you'll notice that you didn't join a board of directors. You joined a board of trustees. And language matters. So with a board mm. of director, it's very heavy on oversight, power over, Right. Whereas a board of trustees suggests that something precious has been entrusted to you for you to keep going and grow. Whole different mindset, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right, it is. So because of that, the navigating the dynamic dynamics between the executive director who was the founder, who later hired an executive director, became a board member, and then retired because they were smart in having outside help to navigate that journey. They did it very successfully. And there was always, I mean, he was a beloved executive director. The board loved him and he loved the board. And then, and then when it was time for him to transition out of the organization, he made really sure that his new team also had that same support and relationship with the board. So it's not something that comes naturally. I think it's something that you need professional help to do most times. Yeah. Well, you and I are always going to uh, endorse the idea of hiring coaches, right? Uh, <laughs> um, so we got a question from Gretchen, uh, who's watching live in the Facebook group, asking about uh, how many people on a board is the best number? I'm sure you've got this question uh, a lot. And based on what we were just talking about, how, how messy it can be, uh, just getting just talking about fundraising, never mind all the other things we ask uh, board members to do, people tend to go for what they believe is a smaller manager, manageable number. Um, but I've also heard advice uh, and, and see lots of situations where a larger number is better. What, what do you tend to tell people? You know, the answer is it depends, and it needs to be an odd number. <laughs> and I like it when it's a multiple of threes. And I'll tell you why. Um, I think part of good ways to build nonprofit sustainability is to make sure that you constantly have people rotating on and off your board. So if yeah. you have three-year service terms or two-year service terms, and every year three people rotate off and three people rotate on, and you have a board of nine people, that works really well because when the three new people come on board, you still have six of the um, old-timers or longer-term who are kind of holding on to the personality 
and, and culture of your organization. So they can't just disrupt everything, you know. But at the same time, people don't stay long enough to get stale either. Now, here's another thing. Uh, the reason I like this model is because I like to create what's called an advisory board. Because inevitably, you're going to have board members that don't work out or people that have been there a long time that really need to move on but don't want to leave the organization. And so when you have somewhere to kick them upstairs in an honorary mm -hmm. position where they don't have to come to all the meetings but they can still be cheerleaders, it can be a graceful way to help them ease out. Now, on the It's also a good way uh, – sorry to cut you know, – I've seen advisory boards used for both both ends of the board member, uh, uh, what you would call term, so yes. that people can start on an advisory board to get, become familiar with the organization without having the board responsibilities and then move on to the board at a later stage. Exactly. So if you're a tiny organization and you're literally just got your you're applying for your 501c3, a number like five is good. Uh, as you grow, if you can grow it to seven or nine, somewhere in that range, fine. But I wouldn't go past nine if you're a small organization because it gets really cumbersome and, you know, it gets to be more political the bigger the board is. But if you're an academic institution, you might have 50 board members, you know. So as you grow yeah. in size, the answer to that question is going to change. And it also, I think, depends on the way that your board chair wants to manage the, the committees, because, again, as you grow and as you're more mature, you're going to have to leave some of those things to the to the board chair to to physically sort of de delegating up to the board chair to do a lot of those things. And, and he or she may have an appetite for uh, for, for managing that. So you can manage a, a slightly larger board. And I would like to say, be careful about that ratio of how many new ones you have to the older ones, because I watched an organization that I consulted with for 15 years almost crumble because they had a huge turnover in their board, brought a lot of new people on who didn't necessarily buy into the organizational culture and history, and it nearly destroyed the organization. So it is a, better to stay small with some committed individuals that are going to work hard for you than to grow beyond what makes sense. Yes. Yeah, that's great. I love the I love the way you describe the the use the 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 value of those odd numbers and the the ratio of new to to old. Uh, let's go on to the the last point. We got a few minutes left. Uh, <laughs> we should have a whole topic about this because this was as I love talking about uh, time and the use of time and time habits. Um, but this is the third thing that you said people uh, struggle with. Uh, which is the time to fundraise. And I'm going to guess that they're trying to balance that with the programmatic duties and the the board duties. Um, and sometimes, in, in many cases, putting almost too solid a boundary on what constitutes fundraising. Because they're often, when you're out in the community, you think you might be doing something for your program, but really you're also building up those relationships and your network from a fundraising perspective too, aren't you? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, you know, not all donors are equally valuable to your organization. And there's only one of you usually. So, you know, fundraising is just like anything else. It works off the Pareto principle, uh, which says 80% of your results come from 20% of your efforts, right? Same is true in fundraising. 80% of your money from individual donors is going to co come from 20% of your donors. So I have a little tool, which I'll be happy to drop in the chat. Um, it's called Who Are My VIP Donors? It's a little Excel spreadsheet <laughs> that you can use to figure out um, who are your most valuable donors, because those those folks are the ones that you need to pay 
serious attention to because if you can retain them and upgrade them just a little bit each year you're automatically going to make more than you will did the year before that doesn't mean you ignore the bottom 80 percent but you can use low touch strategies like emails and automated things to reach out to them whereas with your top 20 percent those are the people you want to visit with call remember their birthdays all that good stuff um right so that's the number one tip i have for uh executive directors or chief everything officers or even development directors that struggle with time. Uh, don't give everybody equal attention, figure out where the money is and make sure those people are getting the high touch TLC, you know, the best of you. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And then do you, um, do you recommend that, uh, that executive directors in or CEOs in small organizations uh, develop uh, uh, support networks with volunteers or that they uh, they stop doing certain things? And, and, and this is the, the debate I've, I've, I've heard people talk about, which is uh, in some cases it's better to, to not do something at all than um, to try and delegate and manage manage it and oversee it to a to a volunteer who you know may or may not you know do it to the extent that you want and, and so on and so forth and so you might have been better off just not doing that at all <laughs> i agree with you kev <laughs> i'm a big fan of working smarter not harder uh, whatever we do we need to make sure that we have enough time to do it well it's better to not do something than do a sloppy job of it um yeah. That's not to say you can't uh, use volunteers to do things, but they should be there to do things that are, they can take it off your plate and do it well if they're there, but you still have the bandwidth to take it back on your plate if they're not, you know? Right, right, yeah. The other thing I would say is a lot of the mistakes that we make, and I've made this in my own business, is we do everything ourselves to save money. So I built my first website myself to save money. And then my business coach was like, do you realize how much money that just cost you? Because it took you 10 times as long to build it as you could have paid somebody to do it for a fraction of what you earn. But right, it's right, right. scarcity mindset. So, you know, get smart about but using we, Which we don't apply to time. Where right. in fact, time is scarce. Exactly. Because there's only so much of it. There is a finite limit. Um, and although, you know, you might look at your bank account and say, there's also a finite limit to the cash I've got on hand. I mean, technically, money is not limited in the same way. Uh, it's just, it's just not, it's just not distributed where we would like it to be. Exactly. And so, as an executive director, you're an expensive janitor. You're an expensive, expensive thank you note writer. Your time would be much better served meeting with a major gift prospect. Because one major gift is going to give you the money to pay for a graphic artist to do Canva or to lay out a newsletter for you. You don't have to do it all. Right. Yeah. It's, I think, you know, a good, uh, a good tactic is looking, looking back where you want to be. What, have you, what is it that you absolutely must achieve in the next 30 days or 90 days or six months? And then you work backward and then drop anything that's not absolutely critical along that path. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And, you know, I don't know about you, Kev, but I'm one of these people that um, when I have a staff working for me, I don't want them to get stressed out. So if they come to me and ask me how to do something, I'll just tell them, you know, yeah, yeah. you can do it this way. Here's how I would do it if it was me. Uh, the problem with that is two things. We stunt their growth because we, they never have to figure anything out. 
and they only learn your way of doing it. Quite often when people have to figure things out, they come up with much more creative and powerful solutions than you ever did. And secondly, yeah. it's it's a huge time suck on your time. So I'm a big fan of uh, not answering emails or requests too quickly if it's something that I think they can figure out on their own because that by default takes things off your plate. Yeah, yeah, that does. It, it's, there's, an, there's an adjustment for people trying that for the first time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it seems it seems uh, sort of anxiety provoking to begin with, um, but but you have to move. The, the the other rule of thumb I've I've heard uh, is if someone can do something at least eighty percent as well as you can, then you should you should be delegating. Um, it's yeah. not going to be perfect, and if you you know perfection is perfection in nonprofit has no place in nonprofits as as far as I'm concerned. If, we're, if you're trying to change the world, you're starting from imperfection to begin with, <laughs> yeah. right? Yes, I'm a bit. One of my favorite Rachelisms is "Done beats perfect every time." <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah, Rachel, I, I'll I'll start my collection of writing things down as Rachelisms. Um, I'm sure your fundraising school is full of them. So let me um, let's close by uh, letting you tell people about your fundraising school really briefly, how to find out about it, and where they can get a copy of your book. Sure. So I'll go ahead and drop a link in the chat for the book. Uh, my book is called No More Duct Tape Fundraising uh, and How to Become an Inspirational Fundraiser. So I actually built an online school based on the book. So each of the components um, corresponds with a chapter in the book. So in the school, you'll learn how to create a technology plan, a communications plan, a fundraising plan, how to design a project to raise 10,000, get your board on board, and uh, so with all, and how to do monthly giving. So it's doing really well. Uh, I'm really encouraged by the response. We've had people in eight different states take it, uh, and the feedback has That's been really great. good. So if you'd like to learn more, I'll drop my um, email address in the in the chat, please just let me know that you found out about me through Kev uh, so that I can make sure and thank Kev uh, for all his great, <laughs> great needs. But, uh, and then the book of course is also available on the website. Great. And the, and the website address again is www.nomoreducttapefundraising.com. No more duct tape fundraising.com. Love it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's been a fantastic 45 minutes, Rachel. Thank you so much uh, for spending this time with me uh, in, in episode 51. So this should be uh, in um, uh, available very shortly as, uh, as the audio podcast. Uh, and thanks for those of you who've joined us on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Uh, and we will be back uh, next Wednesday with a uh, good friend fundraiser, Mallory Erickson. So look forward to that. I will see you uh, every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Uh, Eastern, uh, 8 a.m. Uh, Pacific. <laughs> and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast. My guest today was Rachel Ramjatan, who you can find on LinkedIn and Facebook and at her website, nonprofitplusteam.com. This podcast has been expertly produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio, making professional podcasting easy. Go to podproaudio.com. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. For more information, visit kevkayat.com because good causes deserve better results.